0: Friends and colleagues, and welcome to a bonus episode of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Utah. And I hope you're all staying safe, healthy, and sane in these strange historic times we thought it might be a good idea to release some bonus episodes for Dermosphere because we figure this is a good time to listen to podcasts and maybe a good time to record them as well. So for this bonus episode, we decided to provide access to a Grand Rounds talk that I gave for the Pediatrics Department at the University of Utah in January of 2019. So this is a Grand Rounds for Pediatricians. So... I might be telling some of you some of the things you already know, especially when it comes to things like acne, but still thought it could be useful. And there might be some odd pauses while the audience asks questions. I tried to cut some of those out, but apologies if some of them remain. And there's also, you know, a PowerPoint slide deck that went along with this, which you probably can't see through the podcast, but we'll try to um, post a link to the entire presentation if anybody wants to see it as well. And hopefully it will still be useful for you. You can connect with us at dermospherepodcast.com, which is also a good place to send us messages. So if you've got some articles that you think we should review, please contact us there and let us know. We also are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the other one, which is called Instagram. We're on that too. Dermosphere Podcast. Thanks, guys. And happy listening. All right, let's move on. So we're going to have three little mini lectures. So first we're going to talk about acne. Then we're going to talk about a few conditions that I didn't know existed until my fellowship, but I probably should have known earlier. And then finally, we're going to list some strategies to make derm stuff more affordable for your patients. So again, choose which one you want to pay attention to ahead of time, and then space out during the rest of them if you want. Um, Disclosures, I have Zippo Disclosures, get it? As an aside, I did my family medicine clerkship in medical school in a little town in north central Pennsylvania called Bradford, home of the Zippo Lighter Factory. (coughs) All right, so first we're going to talk about acne. So risk factors for bad acne are as if your family has had some bad acne, if you take certain medications, and then of course some endocrine disorders can also increase your risks. I once attended a lecture about how to make lectures that said all of your slides should have both text and a picture to help you, your audience use both sides of their brain to remember things. So this guy um, is supposed to signify testosterone and steroids. So the pilosebaceous unit is what's a problem in acne. So you can see the healthy one here and then the acne one here with its big pustule. And I think it helps to understand acne and the treatments we use for it if we understand the pathogenesis. So uh, this is an image from our primary dermatology textbook called Bologna. So it starts out here. And the reason this particular pilosebaceous unit is a problem already is because of these sticky skin cells up here called corneocytes, and also this sweat gland is a little bit enlarged. And the reason acne tends to show up in adolescence is for a couple reasons. One is that for some reason these things get stickier, so normally these are supposed to just be shed out the top of the hair shaft, but they get stickier, and also these sebaceous lobules respond to hormonal stimulation. So during acne adolescence, they produce more sebum. And then, Sebum sort of fills up this area because these are sticky and don't let it escape. And then you get a comedone. And these bacteria, P. acnes, loves eating sebum. So they show up here and start eating it. And then your neutrophils come in to try to get rid of them. And maybe this is so filled up it ruptures a little bit. That's also irritating. And then eventually, if you're unlucky, you have this situation here where it's just a complete mess. So if we look at acne under the microscope, we see something very similar. So if we were to do a little biopsy of this pustule here, we'd see something that looks a lot like this, which also looks a lot like this. Acne comes in different kinds, as you guys probably know. So comedones, according to the textbooks, open comedones are what some people call blackheads, and I believe that, so this here. And according to just about every textbook I've read, closed comedones are what some people call whiteheads. But I never called these whiteheads when I was a teenager. I didn't really have a word for them, but they're these maybe a little bit pale, mostly skin colored, tiny papules. Um, This is what I called a whitehead. That's more like a pustule. That's the one I wanted to squeeze onto the mirror. Like this guy here. Splat, so satisfying. Dr. Pimple Popper seems to be making a name for herself because it seems that it wasn't just me who had that fascination. And then, of course, when it gets really bad, you get these cysts, you get scarring, blah. So we hope to avoid that. So again, picture and text. So this helps you remember that it was me who gave you this advice. (laughs) So when I see a patient with acne, the first thing I do is a history, of course. Sometimes dermatologists have a reputation for not doing histories, but sometimes they're still important. So I ask them how long they've had the acne, which parts of their body are affected. Is it just the face? Is it also the chest and back? What they've tried already? Did they work or not? If they're currently doing anything? And then for um, girls and women, is it worse around their periods? And what are they doing for birth control? Because that can have an impact on both their acne and the treatments you select. And if they have any plans for pregnancy, I know I'm talking to a room full of pediatricians, so my hope is that most of your patients do not have plans for pregnancy, but you just never know. And then every so often I ask them some more specific questions. So if they have acne that's localized in one particular area, like just a strip on the forehead or something, you might ask if they wear any gear in that area, like sporting equipment or headbands and things like that. Medications and supplements that we talked about before. um, So testosterone definitely makes acne worse. Workout supplements, so some of our young men are taking these workout supplements. And if you look at the ingredients, they can have all kinds of sort of funny things in them. Um, And then OCPs, some of them make acne worse. Depot shots, that definitely make acne worse. And then steroids, lithium. And then if I think there's some particularly strange reason for them to have such extensive acne, I might ask them some questions about hirsutism or endocrine problems like body hair and that kind of thing. And then the physical exam, again, try to figure out where it is, just face, chest, back. And then in my physical exam note, I say about how many there are, and if they're comedones, if they're erythematous papules, if they're pustules, et cetera. I try to give an idea of how severe it is, because the more severe it is, the more treatment it needs. But the severity is very subjective. Some people's mild might be other people's moderate, but at least it gives my future self an idea when I'm looking back through the note. And then I might comment on scarring and the severity of the scarring. So our targets of acne treatment. So we remember the pathogenesis of acne here. So we can target any portion of it. We can target the excessive sebum production with retinoids, OCPs, or spironolactone. Remember, this is the abnormal follicular keratinization. These keratinocytes are abnormally sticky, so retinoids can help dislodge them, so can benzoyl peroxide, so can azelaic acid, um, and then alpha and beta hydroxy acids can do it. You guys probably don't use a whole lot of those, but those are things like glycolic acid peels that some dermatologists do in their offices. And then the inflammation. You have all those lovely neutrophils around. um, And all of the above treatments can do it. And also topical dapsone, which I don't recommend, specifically targets neutrophils. And then the bacteria. Obviously, we have lots of ways to target bacteria in the medical world. So we can use oral and topical antibiotics. Benzoyl peroxide does it, and the retinoids do it indirectly. And let me point out, retinoids (laughs) affect all parts of acne pathogenesis. All right, what do these have in common? Tretinoin, ondansetron, oxymetazoline. I know you guys all have the handouts for this lecture, which I was not anticipating, but I think even the handout doesn't actually tell you what they have in common. The answer is, they're the only three medications on Luke's list of favorite medications. I just really like these medicines. Uh, Ondansetron just seems like it works really well, and uh, I used it as an intern in the pediatric emergency room world, and it turned sick kids into normal healthy kids in like an hour and a half. That's pretty great. Oxymetazoline. I know you're not supposed to overuse that stuff, but man, it's just like instant relief. I wish all medications provided you with instant relief. And then tretinoin. Love tretinoin. It's good for acne. It's good for scars. It's good for wrinkles. It's good for pigment changes. It's good for what ails you. Everyone who's not pregnant or breastfeeding should be on tretinoid. I said it, it's recorded, I'm not getting paid off. Um, so if you're gonna use topical retinoids, I usually try to start mild. So what I tell patients is that, this is good for all those things and I love the medicine and so on. Major downside, the main downside is that it can cause some skin irritation. So it might make people a little bit red and flaky, might bring out some acne that's sort of lurking under the surface. So I usually tell people to start off just a couple times a week. Most people's skin kind of gets used to it, so slowly increase the frequency until hopefully you're using it every night. And I tell patients and their parents that if you're using it every night, and you're not having irritation, then call our office, and we'll increase the strength, because this should be like unlocking achievements in a video game, right? Finally got to the point where you're using the tretinoin 0025 percent every night without irritation, so now you unlock the achievement of advancing to 0.05%. I say that all the time, and I've only had like two patients call the office for the next highest strength, so. Not sinking in, Um, but there it is. Um, This particular article, which is about 15 years old now, I guess, has some guidelines for acne treatment. So if you're looking for guidelines, this is a pretty decent one. And this is often the sort of thing I do. So everybody gets a topical retinoid. I've sung their praises enough, I think. And almost everybody gets benzoyl peroxide. So this is a face wash that you can buy over the counter. It's in a lot of over-the-counter acne treatments. Two main ingredients in acne treatment washes that you buy over-the-counter are this one and also salicylic acid. I like benzoyl peroxide a little bit better. And it bleaches towels. So tell patients to use a white towel or a towel they don't like. As far as oral antibiotics goes, tetracyclines are our mainstay. Um, Dermatologists use doxycycline for everything. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at dermatology notes, but, you know, there's not a... There's like a 10% chance it says doxycycline in there somewhere. Um, minocycline is pretty decent for acne, too. Here are the side effect profiles. Guess which one I like better? Doxycycline. The more I learn about minocycline, the less I like it. So my advice would be to stick with the doxycycline. And then hormonal treatments. So. All acne is hormonally related to some degree, um, but we don't really have the option of blocking male hormones in male patients. However, in female female patients, we do have that option. So the two different ways we do it are with oral contraceptive pills and with spironolactone. And this sort of gives me some palpitations from studying for step one, but at least it tells you that they work at different areas along the pathway to help prevent the effects of the androgens. And then there's oral isotretinoin. So this is mostly a dermatology thing. I think there are some PCPs out there who prescribe isotretinoin, but it's just inconvenient. The government controls the medicine very closely because of its risk of teratogenicity. And so dermatologists have like special nurses who are really good at isotretinoin and they have special packets that the patient has to use and bring a little card with them to get it from the pharmacy and so on. So it's just too much overhead, I think, for most PCPs. Um, But dermatologists love this medication. It's like the only thing out there that can actually cure acne. Um, And some lucky people who take it will basically be done with their acne, but the majority of people will still have to use washes and creams. But their acne gets a lot better. So if you think somebody might be on the road for this, uh, my advice would be send them to us sooner rather than later. My goal is primarily to prevent scarring. Because scarring is with you forever. Maybe we can stop that from happening. So when I first see somebody, first I think, is this somebody who should be on isotretinoin? So if their acne is especially bad, I might just try to pull the trigger right away. Everybody gets a retinoid, like I talked about, back when they had pregnancy categories. They were pregnancy category C, so technically not safe or technically unknown, but just on the surface of your skin, probably not not enough absorption to make it a big deal. Everybody gets benzoyl peroxide. Look, they're cheap, $4.60. And then I wonder if they need some kind of oral medicine, like doxycycline is the first one I reach for. Um, By the way, I never want people to be on doxycycline forever. Nobody wants people to be on antibiotics forever if we can help it. Dermatologists do seem to have a lower threshold to leave people on antibiotics for a long time, though. So three months or so is normally how long I leave them on doxy for before bringing them back. And then my hope is that the doxycycline calms things down enough for the washes and creams to take over. They come back in, they're doing a ton better, say great, keep doing your tretinoin and your benzoyl peroxide and we'll stop the doxycycline whole hog or we might sort of back off slowly if the patient's nervous about just stopping. But three to six months is my goal. If they rebound or they're just not better enough after three to six months, isotretinoin. Um, We talked about a little bit about spironolactone and OCPs. So there was this nice study a few years ago where they got bunch of patients and they asked them about how their acne was doing and rated it based on their OCPs. So this is like patient reported, how good is my acne based on different OCPs. And Drospirinone was the one that people seemed to think helped their acne the most, followed by these others. And I mean, you guys are probably better at knowing these names than I am, but OCPs are like this huge morass of confusion. So I at least translated it into their brand names. Again, no conflicts of interest. Um, So I prescribe OCPs for acne, and the one I prescribe is usually this one, because it seems to work the best. Um, And then in general, vaginal rings and OCPs are helpful for acne. Depot and implants are definitely bad for acne. The IUD is worse than acne. Sometimes I think that people were on OCPs that were helping their acne, and they've switched to an IUD and then their acne gets worse. But it's just because they stopped the OCP and not because they're on an IUD. But I'm told that the Marina has like a pretty significant progesterone load compared to some other things that are out there. So I'm plus minus on it. And then some people use topical antibiotics. Topical clindamycin lotions, the most common one we use. Erythromycin gel also exists. And I think those add a little bit of power to your acne regimen. But usually... In a teenager, like I try to avoid anything that's too complicated because I want them to actually do things, and most of them, I don't feel are sufficiently motivated that I think the extra little power is worth complicating the regimen. But sometimes I do. Okay. That was my transition slide. sneak peek. But any questions about acne? Yes. Side effects? So the most concerning side effect, of course, is the birth defect thing. And from that, the real side effect is that it's an inconvenience to take. So because of this government regulation, patients have to come see us every month while they're on it. Female patients have to have a pregnancy test every month. Female patients have to tell us two forms of birth control that they're taking before we even start them on it. And those two forms have to be the same throughout their entire course of isotretinoin, which is normally six to seven months. And also, sorry? Yes, so um, let me just finish my soapboxy thing first. Um, Female patients can't even start Accutane if you want to start them on it. They have to have a negative pregnancy test and then they have another one, another negative pregnancy test 30 days later. So it's inconvenience. And especially like the seeing us every month thing is real rough on patients who like live in Wyoming or whatever. So that's, in my opinion, the real side effect that most people experience in terms of more medical side effects. Everybody gets dry. They get dry skin, dry lips, everything is dry. Um, And then most people do well aside from that. Mood changes, controversial in the dermatology world. Some people think um, that the population that is most in need of isotretinoin, the population that has the worst acne, is also the population most at risk for depression and suicidality. Teenage dudes. And there are some studies that suggest that maybe people's mood actually improves when they're on isotretinoin because their acne gets better, and we'd, of course, like to think that. I am a believer that it does affect the mood in some patients. I've had a number of patients who's got, who've gotten more irritable, say they don't like how they feel when they're on their medicine, and I've stopped it for that reason. I think it's a real thing, and I always make sure I talk to them about it. I usually tell patients, all of our regimens take about three months to work. So I tell them to be patient, but if you do everything we talked about, when you come back and see me in three months, you'll be pretty happy with the way things are going. So the question was about neonatal acne. So there's neonatal acne and there's infantile acne. So neonatal acne is more common and is currently thought to be due to a yeast, so it's also sometimes called neonatal cephalic pustulosis to try to differentiate it from true acne. Usually lasts a few weeks, maybe a month or two, and oftentimes antifungal stuff will take care of it. Infantile acne is a bit of a different beast. Um, You probably, guess, don't see it since you're a neonatologist and not an infantologist. Um, but apparently, it's normal for infants, especially boys, but also girls, to have a spike in their testosterone levels in the first year of life. And sometimes that causes the same sort of acne that you can get as a teenager. So the way to differentiate it from some other dermatosis is comedones. So if you see comedones, infantile acne. And then you have to treat it the same way you treat acne in teenagers. You can even use isotretinoin in severe cases, but that's probably like case reporting. Yes, one more, and then I'll move on. Use topical, benzoyl, peroxide, not necessarily a wash, but something that you've just be spotting on. Yes, if the patient refuses to use tretinole. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should be on tretinole. OK, this is my transition slide, and also a way to hijack my own presentation for my own selfish purposes. So just moved here. I play magic cards. I'm always looking for friends. So. If you play or you want to, drop me a line. All right, next mini lecture. Stuff I didn't know until fellowship, but probably should have known a lot earlier. So there's three different conditions in here that I just didn't really know about or didn't appreciate how big of a deal they were um, until my fellowship. So we're gonna start with a case. And again, the fact that you all have a handout kind of ruins the quizzy aspect of this. But if you wanna give yourself a challenge, don't look ahead at the diagnosis. So let's say a five-year-old boy comes into your office. He's got intermittent, itchy, pink bumps, Extremities, trunk, been going on for months. He prescribed him some hydrocortisone, 2.5% cream, a little bit stronger than over-the-counter stuff, right? But the bumps keep coming back. He's otherwise doing fine. No one else in the family is affected. They have a dog, Roscoe, but Roscoe gets regular flea treatments. They had a cat, but they got rid of the cat after these bumps appeared. They kept the dog, though. This is, for some reason, something I see. People are more willing to get rid of their cats than their dogs. All right, it looks a little bit like that. And of course, the diagnosis is papular urticaria, yes, because we all just read it off the slot. So this is, dermatology is full of misnomers, and this is one of them. It is papular, but it's not especially urticarial. It should probably be called recurrent arthropod reaction or insect bite hyperreactivity. So the issue here um, is what, what I tell parents is that little kids, their immune systems are still developing. So in some ways, they're like allergic to bug bites. So they can get a bite somewhere, and then sites of old bites can light up again. And also, they could have had a bite like two days ago, and only now does it decide to form this bite reaction. And it has to do with the immaturity of their immune system and the way they react to the allergens and the bites. And also, kids in general just tend to make more exuberant reaction to bites. Again, I think this has to do with the fact that like an insect bite, in a lot of ways, is a like an allergic reaction. So if you get a bunch of bites over the course of your life, it's like getting little allergy shots. And your reactions will slowly decrease over time. So this is one of my favorite articles in the dermatology literature. And this is uh, where a lot of the rest of this little bit comes from. So they refer to the scratch principles to try to diagnose papular ticaria properly. So. A nice acronym, of course, so it's a symmetric distribution. It shows up as crops, as a lot of insect bites do. I like R, rover not required. You don't have to have pets to make the diagnosis. Um, pets are definitely suspicious, but fleas, for example, can live in the grass. They can live on the neighbor's dog from two doors down. And then other stuff besides fleas can also cause it. Um, it usually occurs in kids aged two to 10. Um, we talked about the target lesions. C is my favorite confused pediatricians, no offense, and parents. So the fact that they don't believe you is one of the criterion for diagnosis. Isn't that awesome? And then it's not unusual for only one person in the entire household to be affected because different people have different thresholds to become sensitized. And especially if there's only one little kid in the house, everybody else is probably getting bitten. They're just not creating reactions. All right, so treatment. So you reassure them about this. Minimize your eye rolls. You give them antihistamines. So I like non-sedating antihistamines in the morning. I like cetirizine and fexofenadine more than loratadine, but whatever. Um, And then we like hydroxazine in the dermatology world. It's a sedating antihistamine. It has a long half-life. So you give it to them at night, and hopefully it'll carry them at least partway through the next day as well. Main downside is that it's sedating. So you don't want it to be zombified when they wake up in the morning, so dose appropriately. Topical steroids can help with the bites when they show up as well. I love triamcinolone 0.1% ointment. It's my workhorse. I don't have a problem using it on little kids. As long as you're putting it on rash, you won't get into trouble. And then we got to figure out where these bites are coming from. So normally I tell parents, take your dog to the vets, do the neighbors have dogs, look in your beds for bed bugs and things, and if they've really done their due diligence, then it's probably just like mosquitoes or something that they can't do anything about, and they just have to wait until the seasons change. And then if little kids gouge the heck out of their flea bites, and they can get impetigo. So sometimes they give people mupirocin and ointment to put on open areas, and tends to make parents feel better, too. So fleas, mosquitoes, and bed bugs are the most common. Um, what's this? It's a bed bug. What's this? Also a bed bug. This is a bed bug that I caught. I was in my residency um, at a VA and one of my patients um, stood up and left after the encounter and then I saw something moving on the exam table afterward and I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's a bed bug. So I got a forceps and I grabbed it and I dropped it in this bottle of formalin and I'm so proud of myself that I'm telling you guys now, three years later. <laughs> look at that guy. Um, so, we talked about this a little bit, we talked about that, and we talked about that. Um, Bed bugs, by the way, like to live in the little seams of mattresses. So, you got to take the sheet off, really look in the seams. Um, you can see how big they are. The scale here, they're small. All right, that's it about popular to carry. Let's talk about a two-year-old girl who came into the emergency room. About five days ago, she had been to her PCP for sore throat, cough, and rhinorrhea, and she had received amoxicillin. And then a few days into the course, she began developing a funny, itchy rash, and now she doesn't want to walk. She feels kind of crummy, but she hasn't had a fever. Uh, This is a patient that I had during my fellowship. Family gave me permission to use their photographs. So without looking ahead, you guys can tell that these are sort of urticarial. They're polycyclic, serpiginous borders. You could describe them as wheels. They come in different sizes, and they seem to leave this brown coloration sometimes after they go away. So this is what we call urticaria multiforme. I like to tell parents it's like super urticaria. In normal urticaria, or hives, histamine and things are released that make the blood vessels a little bit leaky and some serum leaks out, which is why the skin gets puffy. In urticaria multiforme, the blood vessels are so leaky that some red blood cells leak out too. And so they can leave these sort of bruisey looking things afterward, like you see up here. And like other forms of urticaria, this is usually from a viral illness. And you can get joint effusions from it, which in little kids can be mistaken for true arthritis or arthralgias because they don't really want to walk around because they're very stiff. This is another one of my favorite articles, Urticaria Multiforme, also called Acute Annular Urticarial Hypersensitivity. Um, and they often get edema of the face and hands and feet as well. So that's one way you can differentiate it from some other things. I'll Talk a little bit more about that in just a sec. So um, in their cohort here, they looked at the sort of symptoms that children with urticaria multiforme had. And I put arrows next to the ones that were present in over 50% of their patient population. So almost all of them were itchy. They had angioedema of the hands, feet, and face. And they usually had symptoms of a recent viral or bacterial illness. I also want to point out fever and recent antibiotic use. So these are things that make people think this is probably a drug reaction, they got antibiotics. Or this is serum sickness-like reaction because they have a fever. So here are the diagnostic criteria according to this article. So again, the sort of urticarial morphology. They get these ecumotic skin lesions, Begin because the red blood cells leak out too. But they don't have things that really suggest Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Their skin is not painful, it's not sloughing off, it's not blistering their mucous membranes aren't involved, and again, this arthral- arthralgia arthritis issue. So again, it's reassurance, It's antihistamines, it's non-sedating in the morning, hydroxyzine at night, and importantly, whatever antibiotic they were on probably doesn't need to be placed on their allergy list. It's pretty little kids, usually last for about 10 days, and the major entities on the differential erythema multiforme and serum sickness-like reaction. And in my experience, it's usually people think this is serum sickness-like reaction. Um, my senior mentor and fellowship used to say, there's no fever, it's not serum sickness-like reaction. Um, but I would also like to point out that even if there is fever, it's not necessarily serum sickness-like reaction. Um, so here's a nice table from that article. You can see that there's some ways we can easily, well, not so easily, but, there are some ways to tell them apart. So, urticaria multiforme, kids are itchy. Not so much in these other things. Um, and then lymphadenopathy and serum sickness-like reaction. They have a prominent high-grade fever. Occasionally, you can get a fever in, eryth- in urticaria multiforme, but it's low-grade. And then dermatographism. So that's when you, I should ask the residents. Residents, what's dermatographism? Scratch them and a little hive appears, exactly. So you can write your name. My name is a little too long, even though it's only four letters, so I usually try to write the word hi on their back. Um, but that's what dermatographism is, and whenever I see somebody who has this condition, or I think has this condition, you can always see if you can provoke dermatographism. Because if you do, it suggests that it's carry multiformic rather than one of these other things. Though some people are just dermatographic anyway, so it's not 100%, but still it helps. All right, moving on. Four-year-old girl, she's got atopic dermatitis, but it's generally well-controlled with your nice treatment of hydrocortisone 2.5% ointment and tramsinolone 0.1% ointment and some moisturizers. But recently she's got these recalcitrant itchy plaques on her posterior thighs and buttocks. Ah. What's causing this? Toilet seat. Toilet seat dermatitis. I didn't think it was a real thing when I first uh, heard about it in fellowship. it turns out it is. So it's often kids who have eczema or somehow sensitive skin and it's usually an irritant contact dermatitis to the cleansers used to clean the toilet seat. So of course the obvious solution is don't clean your toilet seats, which has been my solution for years. I was way ahead of the game when it comes to toilet seat dermatitis. Um, Occasionally some old reports are that there were allergic contact dermatitis to components of the toilet seat. Usually that's like old woods um, and varnish and things. Most people don't have wooden toilet seats these days anymore. Um, And it looks like this area where the toilet seat contacts the child. And there's a couple things going on here. One is that we use fairly harsh cleaners to clean our toilet seats. Another is that the kids who are affected tend to have sort of a mildly disrupted skin barrier anyway. And the other is that kids of this age, like, tend to just like hang out on the toilet for a while. It's just trying to learn how to do it. So they're like reading a book or playing on their iPad or just sort of wiggling around and being annoying. And that increases the chance of this happening. Um, so here's a nice article about that. So I don't actually tell parents not to clean their toilet seats. I just tell them to rinse them off after you clean them. It's pretty straightforward, gets rid of most of it. You can also switch to like a vinegar sort of cleaner if you want. Toilet seat protectors. I'm generally not a believer that they do any good, but in this particular article, that intervention alone was enough to basically get these kids better. So especially in public places, first of all, they tend to use even harsher cleansers in places like schools and hospitals and things, um, and also you can't really control how the janitors there wash the toilet seats afterward or whatever. So toilet seat protectors are helpful there, and if there are no toilet seat protectors, you can do this silly thing where you like, lay out strips of toilet paper. It should go away. Um, and then topical steroids and emollients, and if it's not getting better, maybe it is one of these allergic reactions, and then you can send them to us for patch testing. Okay, that's it for that bit. We're a little low on time, so if you have questions about any of that, just hold them toward the end, and I'll get through this business of trying to make your dermatology medicines cheaper. So this lecture came about because I gave, I think, the acne one to um, a group of folks up at Oregon, and afterwards, somebody came up and said, you know, that was a nice lecture. But um, what I really want to know about is how to make these things affordable for my patients because these dermatology medications are, like, pretty expensive. And I said, huh, well, I guess we have some few, a few tricks that I could tell you guys about. So here are a few tricks. All right, so what's a dermatologist's favorite treatment? Hint, it's not topical steroids, but we do love topical steroids, no doubt. It's not doxycycline, but I already told you how much we like doxycycline. It's not even reassurance, though I do love reassuring people and I do it all the time. It is, (coughs) close, Vaseline, petroleum jelly. You can also call it petrolatum. I'm going to use the word Vaseline even though it's a brand name just because it's a lot easier to say and people know what I'm talking about. So it's used for all kinds of stuff in dermatology. It's one of my favorite things. It's like a cure-all. So especially in the pediatric world, we use it a lot for moisturization, atopic dermatitis. Um, It's also great for wound care. So the gooier wounds are, the better they heal. So especially in the adult world, if we're doing a skin biopsy or something, Vaseline over the top. If People come to us with wounds that won't heal. The first thing we do is Vaseline and a Band-Aid. And it works a surprising amount of the time. Vaseline, not Neosporin. People get allergic to that, just Vaseline. Um, it also is a good barrier, so you can use it like instead of a diaper paste if you want, though I do like things with zinc in them for that purpose, um, but you can prevent drool from irritating your kid's skin if you smear it around their face before they eat and that kind of stuff. Downsides. My senior mentor in fellowship assured me that it was not acnegenic, but I find it hard to believe because it seems so occlusive. It can cause some heat rash, especially if it's put on like in hot July months or something. But the main downside is that it's greasy and messy, and some people just don't like it. And you might be some of those people. So I want people to actually put stuff on their skin they actually kind of like. So what I tell them is, okay, pick the most Vaseline-like thing that you kind of like putting on your skin. So the thicker and greasier they are, the better they work. So all of these other moisturizers that you hear us talk about, like Eucerin and Aquaphor and Cetaphil and CeraVe and blah, 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 not as good as just Vaseline, but they feel nicer. So Vaseline, is the bomb. Ha! Came up with that one myself. All right, another technique is to make the topical steroids work better. There's a couple couple ways to do this. So one is what they call the soak and smear technique. So if the skin is full of water, the topical steroids can work 10 to 100 times better. So soak in the bath or soak that part of the body for about 10 minutes, get out, and immediately stare it on that area. Don't dry them off beforehand. Occlusion can also help, um, so especially if people just have like on problems on their hands or something, try them or whatever ointment at night, occlude with cotton gloves like you see here on sale for $1.50 for an eight pack, and have them sleep like that if they can tolerate it. Um, and then wet wraps. You guys have probably seen us do wet wraps or seen that we recommended in the note or something. It's sort of all of these put together. Kid sits in the bathtub for 10 minutes, gets out, slathered with triamcinolone anointment, damp pajamas over top, sweatsuit over top of that so they don't get chilled, sleep like that. I was not a believer in this until I saw it with my own eyes. In fellowship, we had a couple patients, like eight to 10 year old kids, super bad eczema, admitted to the hospital for it. We did this technique, you know, 5 p.m., rounded on them the next day around noon, already like 50% better. It's quite impressive and safe compared to other stuff we can do for severe eczema. All right, bathing technique. Again, this is sort of an eczema-specific thing, but it's helpful. So um, I see sometimes some confusion with parents telling me that, oh, somebody told me to take the shortest shower possible, and somebody else told me to take a really long bath. So here's the deal. If you have water on your skin, and then you get out of the water, the water evaporates from your skin, and it takes more water with it because water is polar and water follows water. So bathing of any kind dries you out. Unless you immediately put on a nice moisturizer, like, yes, to help seal in all that moisture that's seeped into the skin. So baths are better than showers because in the shower, the water hits your skin and then bounces off into the drain, doesn't really soak in very much. But if you're in a bath, the water soaks into your skin and hydrates all that epidermis and then you get out you slather it with Vaseline, the water can't evaporate. It does a great job. So that's the sort of thing I recommend recommending. And uh, no sponge baths. So again, my senior mentor, Dr. Kroll, used to say the itchiest kids you'll see are the ones who get sponge bathed. Because it's like the worst of both worlds. They get wet, then they get dry immediately. And then they get wet again, and they get dry immediately. So it Really dries them out. No sponge baths. All right, another technique is just to use cheap medications Um, So here are some dermatology medications that were available on the Walmart $4 list when I made this lecture. Um, I didn't look at any other $4 lists because I couldn't seem to find current ones. But there you go. Um, Probably these change routinely, so it's worth rechecking every so often. GoodRx. Raise your hand if you are not familiar with GoodRx. Just a couple of you. Um, Well, And I'll quickly say that this is a great website, it's also an app, where you can type in a medication and it tells you where to get it for the cheapest price if you're paying out of pocket for it. And you can also get coupons directly from the website. um, And you can see that this doxycycline is 33 bucks when it would have been 141 bucks cash price or whatever. We use this all the time. It's great. We have some samples and coupons that we can use for parents. Um, Those things exist. If you want to prescribe something to a patient and they say it's going to be real expensive, you can do a quick Google search to see if there's some kind of manufactured coupon available for it if you want. I generally think these are not good for the healthcare system in general, because I still think it's like other insured patients who are somehow eating the cost. Um, But if you need to get a medicine to your patient, this is one way you might be able to. And then for real fancy medications in the dermatology world, this is a little bit beyond what you guys will be doing, but know that we sometimes have some other resources available for our patients. So if you've got a patient with really bad psoriasis, for example, and you're like, well, one of those new fancy psoriasis medications would probably be good, but they're so expensive and the patient's uninsured, probably there's nothing to be done, so I won't bother referring him to dermatology. Send him to us anyway. A lot of these companies, out of the goodness of their hearts, will provide the medication for free if patients meet certain requirements. And then patient support groups, of course, aren't a medication, but I think they can be surprisingly helpful for some families. Some people really sort of enjoy getting plugged into a network of people whose kids have similar issues that they do. And then this is really cheap and free and also sort of spreads the love because then they can provide advice for other families and so on. So I like this idea as well. Some specifics. So for acne, benzoyl peroxide is cheap, adapalene which is the weakest retinoid out there. Used to be 200 bucks until about two years ago when it became over-the-counter, and now it's 12 bucks, super cheap. Um, this is the cheapest of the OCPs that are good for acne that I could find. Um, of course, the caveat with all of this stuff is these were prices I looked up at the time, um, and there's various brands and stuff that aren't paying me, sadly. So other acne stuff. So doxycycline and tretinoin are expensive for some people. So here are some other options. Our method from sulfamethoxazole makes dermatologists wet their pants because it's associated with Stevens-Johnson syndrome, but it doesn't really happen all that often, and it's cheap. Um, Cefadroxil tends to be my second line if patients can't tolerate doxy and I still want to try some oral antibiotics for some reason. It's fairly cheap as well. Azithromycin, quite cheap and only three times a week, so that's nice. And then spironolactone, if the patient is at least a year out from menarche, I would consider that one. Salicylic acid peels, some dermatologists do them in their office. You can also just buy them on Amazon for about 20 bucks and do it at home some instructions and stuff. And then as far as scarring goes, um, some options out there are microneedling devices. So this is like a little roller with little tiny needles on it, and you roll it over your skin, and the idea is you pokes little holes in your skin so that the dermis can repair itself and fill in some of those little acne scars. Microneedling is shown to be one of the best treatments available for acne scars. Dermatologists and plastic surgeons do it in their offices for a large amount of money. I honestly am not sure what the difference is between the device we use and these devices that are available over the counter. There's probably some difference, but I doubt it's that big of a deal. Um, and then this is one that really lodges in my craw. People spend a ton of money on over the counter stuff to get rid of their acne, when they probably should just come see me or you and be put on benzoyl peroxide in a retinoid. So stop everything that they're currently doing because it's probably too expensive and doesn't work anyways. So exfoliants, astringents, you don't need to use that stuff, especially if you're already on a retinoid because the retinoid already does that same thing just in a calmer, gentler, more controlled fashion. Combination products like benzoclin and stuff like that that include like benzoyl peroxide and topical antibiotic, I don't like those because they're super pricey. Um, just give them to them separately. I know that adherence could potentially be an issue, um, but still, it's such a cost to the system, I'm not a fan. You don't need fancy soaps you don't need other fancy over the counter treatments like proactive and stuff the active ingredient is proactive is benzoyl peroxide which i really like but it doesn't need to be this expensive i put rodan and fields in here because one of my colleagues was looking at me when i was making this slide and she said oh put rodan and fields in there so i don't even quite know what rodan and fields is but apparently it's too expensive and then i don't think i need to talk about pediatricians about smoking like if the parent can't afford their child's medication and they smell like cigarettes like Uh. You guys are with me on that. All right. Let's talk about some inexpensive treatments for warts and molluscum. Um, So my favorite over-the-counter wart treatments are those that have 40% salicylic acid. That's the strongest you can get over-the-counter. And Wartstick and Metaplast are two brands that are 40%. There are also a few compound W products that are 40%. So if you're going to treat warts, go big. Um, By the way, quick pearl. When I talk about treating warts with one of these things, here's what I tell them. At night, put Vaseline on the normal skin around the wart to protect it. Put the medicine on the wart, cover with a piece of medical tape or duct tape, and then sleep like that. And then take the tape off in the morning, kind of don't worry about it in the morning. But I think the Vaseline is important for a couple reasons. One, the salicylic acid is pretty irritating to the skin. And two, warts kebnerize. So wart virus likes to invade damaged skin. So if you're damaging the skin in an area that already has a lot of warts, you might spread it around. So I like the Vaseline drink. Um, Adapalene, we talked about it before. You can use it to sort of irritate molluscum and hope that the immune system goes after them. There's one study that received a lot of press that shows that just duct tape alone can help warts. Hasn't been replicated. But still, if you're gonna cover the wart with something anyway, it might as well be duct tape because there's a little bit of data behind it. Um, there's a little bit of data that zinc helps warts and molluscum as well, helps the body get rid of viral infections for some reason. So. Gessitin contains topical zinc, so sometimes I suggest that patients might put that on their kids' molluscum if they want to feel like they're doing something that might help but is super innocuous. Um, and then there's a cimetidine. Um, there's a few studies that show high doses of cimetidine can help kids fight off molluscum, and it's pretty cheap. We made it to the end. As a reminder, magic cards. I embrace my nerdiness, and I encourage you to do the same. All right, anyone have questions about any of this stuff? Yeah. Uh, Can you comment on diet and acne? I would be happy to. So the question was about diet and acne. And the answer, as in many things in life, is to have the patient do whatever their mother says. In terms of medical data, there's not much that says that there's much in the diet that affects acne. There's a little bit of weak data that says that diets with a high glycemic load make acne worse. So a high glycemic load means lots of simple sugars. And there's a little bit of weak data that skim milk makes acne a little bit worse. Not other dairy products, but skim milk in particular. There is some hypotheses as to why. Some people think the process of creating skim milk like concentrates the hormones that were already present in milk and maybe that pushes on acne. I don't know. I'm not really convinced with any of it, but I just tell patients to listen to their parents and to eat a healthy diet. With the derma roller, Is there a length of needle you recommend to people? So the question was about that microneedling for acne scars, the length of the needle. So when we're doing it in clinic, we change the length of the needle based on the location on the face that we're treating. So eyelids, shorter needles, than cheeks and so on. And it's like 0.5 millimeters, that kind of thing. Um, My advice would be just to use whatever the package insert says if you're buying one of the -the over-the-counter ones. about bleach baths with eczema? Bleach baths with eczema. I have not seen convincing data. And there was a recent report from, like, the eczema task force type people that said, after looking into it and really wanting there to be evidence, we didn't really find anything convincing. Gah! So I normally don't really suggest bleach baths just because, again, further complicating an already complicated treatment regimen, unless the patient has gotten a lot of impetigo. They just get recurrent superficial bacterial infections. I think it makes some sense to try to decrease that. And the recipe is one quarter to one half a cup of bleach in a full bathtub.
1: How long each parents
0: molluscum will last? And no one... so the question is, how long does molluscum last? Or what do I tell parents, anyway? So on average, molluscum lasts for six months. But some people last a lot longer. I of course see the worst of them. So I see some patients who had molluscum for years. I think the longest I've seen is five years. Patient with molluscum for five years, which can definitely become frustrating. But my preferred treatment for molluscum, as yours is probably as well, is just to reassure parents, this is benign, it goes away, let's not do something that'll leave scars. If they can do handle that. I say that we found a practitioner online, took a quiz for our acne, about what type of acne we have described sort of like I haven't run into that issue, um, <laughs> but I like technology. And I think that telehealth and teledermatology are going to be important aspects of the future of medicine. And I feel that acne is one of the conditions that could probably be treated okay um, via teledermatology. So as long as it was appropriate and you made sure you weren't doing something that you might forget about, like medication interactions or teratogenicity or something like that, I think with some good photographs and a good questionnaire, you probably could treat acne over the internet. What's the idea behind waiting a year after menarche for OCP Starts? What's the a year after menarche to start OCPs, so a that's a good question. that's what I heard from some of my senior colleagues, um, uh, several of them, and also there was one or two papers that said that that's just what those people did, but it didn't give a specific reason other than, you know, give the menstrual cycle a chance to kind of work itself out. Over-the-counter phototherapy for acne. Probably not enough data to recommend it. Um, There's a little bit of data on photodynamic therapy for acne, which is something we can do in our offices, but it requires us to put on the special medicine on their face, and then for it to sit there for an hour to activate, and then you shine this special wavelength of light to activate it. Um, Not a ton of research into that other thing, so I don't think I'd recommend that. Go to Hawaii, yes. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, when I. I... During my residency there and practice there, we rarely see acne in dark colored kids because they spend all the time outside surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could uh, get Medicaid to cover that. Saltwater. <laughs> Salt Other questions? All right, well, thanks a lot for your attention and hopefully we'll see some of That's all for that Pediatrics Grand Round presentation. Thanks for hanging out with us today, guys, and I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. We'll see if we can release some more as well. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you your podcasts. And, of course, you can find us online at DermospherePodcast.com. Until next time, stay healthy.